You are now listening to the August 15th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Today, we'll share the stories from 1 Kings chapter 11 and reflect on Israel's downfall and the end of Solomon's reign and his time on earth. Would you think of a time when you saw something that was so beautiful and glorious, you were simply in awe? Now, could you also imagine that whatever you saw there would fall short of what Solomon had in his lifetime. The Bible tells us that Solomon enjoyed the riches and glories during his time like none other before and none other afterward. However, all his riches and glories eventually lost their luster when Solomon started to live according to his own desires rather than the teachings that came from God. The main culprit in the demise of his relationship with the Lord, was his marriage policy. Solomon used marriage to form alliances with other countries through carefully and strategically arranged marriages with neighboring nations he intended to stabilize Israel and grow international relationships and trades. However, his policy eventually led to too many foreign wives and concubines and became a serious stumbling block in his walk with God. You may be surprised to learn that neither his first wife nor his second was an Israelite woman. His first wife, Nehemiah, was from Ammon, and his second wife was a princess from Egypt. Beyond these two wives, he took additional wives and concubines chosen from women of nobility of the Moabites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. 1 King chapter 11, verse 3 tells us that he had as many as 700 wives and 300 concubines. God had spoken to the Israelites through Moses about marrying foreign women. He instructed that the sons of Israel should not be yoked with pagan women. God knew that the kings would worship the idols these pagan women would bring. Unfortunately, however, Solomon did not heed God's instructions. He showed no qualms about marrying the women that worshipped foreign and false gods, and he married many, many of them. These women he married had extravagant lifestyles and worshipped the gods they brought with them to Israel. Eventually, toward the end of his life, these women caused Solomon's heart to turn towards these idols, as God had warned against beforehand. He even took on constructions to build temple for these foreign gods in close proximity to the temple of God. He built temples for Ashtoreth of the Sidonians and for Milcom of the Ammonites. He even built temples for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable idol of Ammon, on the mountain in the east of Jerusalem. These are some strange names, so let us take a look at these foreign gods. The name 
Ashtoreth, is mentioned many times in the Bible. Ashtoreth is a goddess of bounty and sexual love that was mainly worshipped in Sidon of Phoenicia. Later, it was called Aphrodite in Greece and Venus in Rome. Ashtoreth was a commonly worshipped idol in the Canaan region. During the time of Exodus, the Israelites became assimilated to the local religious customs and worshipped this despicable idol. Even during the times of Judges, the Israelites were still worshipping it, thus flaring the anger of God. Now Solomon worshipped Ashtoreth and built a temple for it, greatly sinning against God. Moloch was an idol the Ammonites worshipped. It had the head of a bull in the body of a man. It sat up with its arms spread open. Moab was a neighboring nation, and they worshipped an idol named Chemosh. Scholars say it was a god of death and oversaw death. Because of that, the followers had to sacrifice living beings. Even knowing that Molech was an idol, Solomon built a temple for it and started worshipping it. As time passed, Solomon turned away from God's grace further and further. He mistook the precious blessings from God as his own doing and became nonchalant to God's instructions. Eventually, Solomon's disregard and disobedience led to God's inevitable intervention. God punished Solomon by raising formidable enemies to torment him in his later life. To name a few, there were Hadad the Edomite, Rezan the son of Elida from Zobah, and Jeroboam the son of Naboth, who was Solomon's servant. Hadad had been in exile in Egypt when Solomon became king. He was the lone surviving royal descendant of Edom. Some of our listeners may remember the time when David commanded Joab to attack and destroy Edom. At that time, Hadad was a young boy. Edom could not stand the onslaught of the forces led by Joab, but the boy Hadad was able to escape and took asylum in Egypt. He found great favor with the pharaoh there. He even married the pharaoh's sister-in-law. When he heard David and Joab died, he returned to Edom and staked out his position to become Israel's adversary. He began to instigate disturbances in the southern border of Israel. Reason used to be a servant of Hadadezer, the king of Zobah. There was a battle between Hadadezer and David. David emerged as the victor of that battle. When the news of defeat became intimate, Reason escaped to Damascus with a few surviving men. There they founded Syria. Reason subsequently became an adversary to Solomon. Eventually, after Solomon died and Israel began to disintegrate internally, they even received tributes from Israel. Compared to Hadad and Reason, Jeroboam was different. For one, Jeroboam was an Israelite from the tribe of Ephraim. The Ephraimites lived in northern Israel. Jeroboam initially served Solomon. When Solomon was rebuilding Fort Milo and fixing the wall of the city of David, he noticed the young man Jeroboam and drafted him into his service. Solomon appointed Jeroboam in charge of all conscripted labor force of the house of Joseph. 
As a side note, the house of Joseph consisted of two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Around that time, Jeroboam had some business to attend to outside of Jerusalem. On the way, he happened to bump into the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite. In fact, he was sent there by God. When they met, Ahijah tore his new cloak he was wearing into twelve pieces. He then told Jeroboam to take ten pieces. Ahijah said that God would tear away Israel from Solomon's hand and give ten tribes to Jeroboam, but leave one tribe for the son of Solomon. This was the start of the fulfillment of God's warning that God would take the nation from Solomon if he did not obey God and give it to one of his servants. Though surprised at Ahijah's prophecy, Jeroboam accepted what he said as God's word. He decided to rise up against Solomon and lead his tribe, Ephraim, along with other northern tribes. Solomon found out about Jeroboam's plan and sought after him to arrest him so he could put him to death. However, Jeroboam fled to Egypt and submitted himself to the protection of Shishak, the king of Egypt. Shishak provided refuge for Jeroboam, and he stayed in Egypt until Solomon's death. Solomon died without being able to quell Jeroboam's uprising. Though he received the name Jedidiah, which means God loves from God himself, Solomon did not follow God's ways and lived in his own ways. In the end, he died confessing how everything was in vain. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, Solomon exclaims, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. After Solomon's death, Jeroboam returned to Israel and became king over ten tribes of Israel and founded northern Israel. Meanwhile, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, started to reign over the remaining tribe in southern Judah. We will continue with the story of kings next time. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary PHX in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Growing Up. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. I want us to spend just a little bit of time looking at what the Bible says about the stages of spiritual life. You know, we're not all on the same page when it comes to our walk with the Lord. And the Apostle John seems to be referring to this in his first letter. So what I want you to do is I want you to go to 1 John and I want you to look at chapter 2. Now, John wrote the Gospel of John, which is near the front of the New Testament. And then toward the back of the New Testament, he wrote two letters and a postcard, is what I say. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, and then 3 John, which is a really, really short book. I mean, you could kind of brag. They say, well, you know, this week I read an entire book of the Bible. What was it? First John. Well, maybe not everybody would know what we know, but we would know that's not a lot of Bible. But a little is better than nothing. So let's go again to First John chapter 2. And we'll look at verse 12. John is laying out now what I, I believe are the stages of spiritual growth. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. John compares our spiritual lives with four different stages of human uh, development and growth. First of all, he mentioned little children, like babies. The second, he uh, mentions children. The third is he mentions young men. And then he mentions fathers. Now, I don't want you to think that he's only talking to men, okay? Let's, we can uh, broaden all of this to say, you know, children of, of any sex, of course, uh, fathers uh, referring to mature men or women. So we'll use his terminology, but of course, we, we broaden it because it, it speaks to all of us, male or female. These categories don't imply age at all, though. He says, you know, babies, children, young men, fathers. Don't think it has to do with chronological age at all. Because you could be saved at, say, 65, but you're a baby Christian. Or you could be very mature. You could be like a spiritual father, and you're 25. What it's all about is where you are in maturity with the Lord Jesus. There are specific areas of truth that we are supposed to learn and experience in each of these stages of growth. And so this is what I want you to do. Listen carefully. I want you to hear what I have to say about these four spiritual stages. I want you to look at your life. I mean, really look carefully at your life and honestly look at yourself. And I want you to decide where you are in these stages of spiritual maturity because it's very helpful and important for us uh, in order to grow in our spiritual walk. Now, the first stage of life that John mentions 
is that of being a newborn. He says little children. That's the Greek term for a baby, a newborn baby. In fact, um, literally the Greek word here means, I'm writing to you, born ones, born ones. These are infants, okay? Now, all Christians who come into God's family begin as little born ones. We begin as little babies. Uh, The Bible says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. The scripture tells us that God only sees two families. He only sees two families. He only sees children of God and children of the devil. I mean, that's what the Bible says. There's only two kind of families. You're, you're born of God or you're born of Satan. So you must be born again. And when you're saved, everybody starts out in this little baby stage. Okay, that's where we begin, all of us. A few years ago, I became a new grandpa when our first grandchild, a granddaughter, was born. And I mean, it was awesome. And uh, everybody would ask, how is it being a grandpa? And I would say, oh man, it's great. And I would talk about, I have a grandchild. And then like 11 months later, we have another granddaughter. And so now I'm going from uh, just getting used to saying I'm a granddaughter Pa, you know, and I have a grandchild to now I have grandchildren. I know it was something for Leslie and I. Okay, we got, we've got grandchildren. Then 11 months later, we have another granddaughter. Now we're waiting right now what's going to happen in the next 11 months. <laughs> Who knows? No pressure on anybody. But you know what I have delighted in is watching <coughs> these little ones grow mature. I'm always amazed at how much they learn in these little stages. And you'll hear me say, I can't believe what they know. And they've only been in this world 30 days. I can believe what they know and how they develop. They've only been in the world 90 days. They've only been in the world 12 months. They've only been in the world 24 months. I delight to see their growth and their development at every single stage. And I want you to know that God loves seeing your growth and your development at every single stage of your life. You know, newborns are, you know, they have their, their issues. They need to be fed. They need to be carried. They need, you know, they have all those important stages that, that um, characterize them. But thank God... They don't stay babies forever. I know most parents, you know, it's like if you were to send in a praise report, they'd say, "Uh, she's sleeping until eight in the morning. I mean, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? Because it was, you know, all through the night, you'd get at three o'clock, then you'd have five o'clock, and, you know, you never had any rest. You know, you can tell the new parents, they look like zombies. Their eyes, you know, they have little X's, you know, they exist but they don't know where they are, what they're doing. All they're doing is feeding and changing diapers, that's for sure. But God wants us to grow up. God doesn't want us to stay in this stage, obviously. The Apostle Paul had to really prod some Christians on. There was a church in the city of Corinth that had a lot of problems. It was the last church I would, I would ever want to pastor, and I, don't, I wouldn't want any of you to have to go to that church, okay? They just had tons of problems. 
But the kinds of issues they dealt with are pretty common. And one of them was that people were not growing up spiritually. And so the apostle Paul writes him, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, listen to what he says. Just listen. Dear brothers, I've been talking to you as though you were still just babies in the Christian life who are not following the Lord, but your own desires. I cannot talk to you as I would healthy Christians who are filled with the spirit. He goes on. I've had to feed you with milk and not with solid food because you couldn't digest anything stronger. And even now you still have to be fed on milk for you're still only baby Christians. Listen, controlled by your own desires, not God's. When you are jealous of one another and divided up in quarreling groups, doesn't that prove you are still babies wanting your own way? In fact, you are acting just like people who don't belong to the Lord at all. Woo! Paul is saying what? Grow up. Get out of this newborn stage. You're supposed to go on. And if you don't grow up, if a baby stayed the same, that would be tragic. God created us to grow. Now, in each of these stages, uh, there is something to learn. Something characterizes, a lesson is characterized uh, and taught in each of these stages. And to the little babies, Paul says, this is what you need to learn. John says, I'm writing to you little children because, now here's a lesson he wants us to learn at that stage, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. That's the lesson that you've got to learn in the very first stage of your Christian life is that your sins are forgiven for Jesus' sake. You've got to understand the ramifications of what that means in your life. Your sins are forgiven. What does that mean? Well, as I said, your forgiveness was purchased by the blood of Jesus. Forgiveness Forgiveness guarantees that our sins are all gone. Can you say amen to that? Listen to what uh, Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 22. God says, I've wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins I will remember no more. What do you think about that? Say it with me. I have wiped out your transgressions. Say that. I've wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud, and your sins I will remember no more. Man, I'm telling you, I'm claiming that promise of God. How about you? But that's not all. In 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9, the same uh, book if you want to look there, 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I doubt that anybody will, will say, I don't have any sin, okay? He says, so if we would, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But he goes on to say, if we confess our sins, in verse nine, he is faithful and he is righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 
my children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. If we confess our sins, the Bible says he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of all our sins. And that is our sins in the past. I know my sins have been cast in the depths of the sea. Right now, Jesus is forgiving me. And you know what? Think about it. Does Jesus know the future? Does God know the future? Of course he does. I mean, he lives outside of time. And that means even in the future, God knows what's going to happen. God knows the good things you're going to do. God knows the bad things you're going to do. And God will forgive you. God didn't get surprised by you when he brought you into his family. God sees your whole life and he still accepted us. That's amazing, isn't it? That is absolutely incredible. First John chapter five. I'll look at it. I want you to see it with your own eyes. First John chapter five, verses 11 through 14. Look at what it says. First John five, 11 through 14. Follow along. And this is a testimony that God gave us eternal life. And where is this life found? And this life is in his son. So this is a testimony God has given us eternal life. This life is in Jesus. Verse 12, whoever has the son has what? Life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, the lesson, the first lesson that we learn when we are newborns in our walk with the Lord is that our sins are forgiven. We are secure in Jesus Christ. We can know that we have eternal life. That's the very first thing you've got to learn. Now, there's a second uh, phase. If you go back to First John chapter 2, and you look at the, uh, the, the latter part of verse 13, he says, here's the second part of life that John mentions. He says, I write to you children. I write to you children. This is a different term than was used before. It refers to children who are still under instruction. Their parents are still teaching them. This stage is, is a stage where kids are learning and learning and learning. They're picking up on things uh, from their surroundings, from uh, <laughs> their parents. And they're just little sponges. Our, one of our granddaughters, um, she calls me, you know, I'm not grandpa. I'm not, she calls me wow. That's what the grandkids call me. Wow, believe it or not, wow. But Leslie talked to me and she heard Leslie say, hey, Mark. And she looked at me, said, hey, Mark. And I said, no, wow, Mark. And she, you know, it's like, she picks up everything. All of our grands, they're just little sponges. They mimic. And, and see, at this stage in the Christian life, you are absorbing a whole lot. And we're praying now, it'll be good input that you're getting. Children are very impressionable. Children are vulnerable. Children can be easily deceived. Children have to have the right input. They're learning what happens when they do wrong things. They're learning consequence. They're learning 
truth. And at this stage in a Christian life, you are learning, learning, learning. You're learning kind of the ABCs of the Christian life. You're learning sound doctrine, things like creation, who Jesus is, salvation. Uh, you know, there's so many, you're learning it all. It's very important. But at the same time, you can be very vulnerable to false teaching because, you know, everything's kind of new. You're open to everything. And so at this stage in your life, you want to be very careful that you get a really solid, right foundation in the word and not be deceived. That's where, you know, older, more mature Christians who are grounded in the faith come in to help speak into your life and really help you be trained in what it means to be a new believer The Apostle Paul says that knowing truth will help us in very important ways. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul says, Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. You know, over the years, I've seen a lot of Christians deceived. They've been tricked by clever ideas, by by people twisting the scripture. And now to think about it, I would say most of them are in this stage of their spiritual walk. They're very vulnerable at this stage. You know, I think the cults prey on people in this stage, you don't, you don't see a lot of the cults out evangelizing. What they do is they come after Christians. People are already saved. They're out of the baby stage. And then they prey on them at this stage. So if you know somebody in this stage or you're in this stage, spiritual stage, be careful. And that's why it's so important to listen to sound doctrine. Get into the word and read the word. Get teaching, podcasts, read books that will help you grow in the word of God. Those in the next stage of spiritual maturity are referred to as young men. We can say young men, young women. Look at in verses 13, I say 13b and 14b, the latter parts of both those verses. John addresses them both. In both verses, he says, I am writing to young men. I could say young people, maybe. Those in this stage of spiritual growth are conquerors. They're conquerors. John says, look at verse 13. They have overcome the evil one. That's Satan. They have overcome Satan. Those who are considered to be in the the spiritual uh, maturity group of being a young person, they've overcome Satan. Look then at what he adds in verse 14. He says, and you are strong. This stage, you're overcoming Satan and you're spiritually strong. Satan can't just push you over like he used to. Being an overcomer means that you're not backing down from the devil. You're you're resisting the devil. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Satan can't stand in the presence of Jesus Christ and in the word of God. And at this stage, we're going to see, you know, the word better. 
And the word of God is our weapon. The word of God is a sword of the spirit. And in the hands of a believer, empowered by the Holy Spirit, the sword of the spirit is an incredible thing. He says, the word of God, look at verse 14, and the word of God abides in you. Not only are you strong, he says, the word of God abides in you. How do you overcome Satan? Through the word of God. How do you become strong? Through the word of God. Now, maybe you remember what the writer of Psalm 119 said. Psalm 119, verses 11 and 12. You probably don't remember the address, but maybe you'll remember the words. If not, that's kind of cool because I get to read them to you for the first time. Psalm 119, verses 11, it says, uh, 9 through 11, I'm sorry, says, how can a young person stay pure? By obeying God's word. I've tried hard to find you. He says, I'm trying to find you, God. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart so that I will not sin against you. So the question is, how can I keep pure? Well, it's by keeping your word. How do I do that? He says, I've hidden your word is in my heart so I won't sin against you. See, when you're in this stage in your spiritual growth, and maturity and development, the word of God is working in your life. You're not a pushover anymore. You're mature. I would say you are a defender of the faith now. You've got a strong biblical worldview now. You understand right from wrong. And in many ways, you know, you are really super mature in your walk. And I would say that is, that is where a lot of Christians are at this stage in their lives. You know, I want you to move on from babyhood, of course, and from that uh, place of being a child where you're just very vulnerable. We want to get to this stage where you're strong. The word of God abides in you. And then John says, you have overcome the evil one. You've overcome the evil one. Did you notice that he mentions this twice? Twice he says that a characteristic of this stage of being a young person is overcoming Satan. Twice he says that. So here's the way it works. The word of God abides in you. You are strong because the word of God abides in you. That's what is your strength, the word of God working in your life. And then you can overcome the evil one. You're just not gonna have victory in your life unless the word of God is dwelling in you. How do you get the word of God in you? I'm just going to kind of say the obvious is by what? Reading the word of God. You're not going to be able to know the word of God unless you're in the word of God. Start with the gospel. Read through the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or choose one. And then go on to read the New Testament letters. Get God's word in your heart. Know the Bible, hear the Bible, pray, God help me, speak to me. He will. God wants you to know his word. Obviously, he's going to answer that prayer for sure. Some prayers we wonder, God, will you answer that one? I guarantee you, God will answer that prayer. That is his will for you, to know his word. Please get into the word of God every way you possibly can. It's easy now to be able to listen 
to the word on a device. It's easy to read the word of God. You can take it anywhere. You can haul your Bible along any place and you don't look like a Bible thumper. You know, you have even a Bible in your back pocket. I used to carry a New Testament in back pocket. I don't even have to do that anymore. I think it's a cool witness. I don't have to do that anymore because it's on my phone. You've got all of this opportunity right before us. And someday we'll stand before God and God say, hey, I made it as easy for you, easier than in any generation in time to know my word. What were you doing with that opportunity? I want to be able to say, Lord, I was in your word. I was (laughs) feeding on your word because the word of God is what gives us strength. I mean, how long can you go without eating? I mean, anybody who's tried to be on some kind of a diet realizes it's really hard to go very long, even without carbs, right? I mean, when you don't eat for a long period of time, you get weak. You get sometimes a little dizzy. You get a little crabby, don't you? Hangry, we say. If you're not in the word of God, it kind of shows in your life as well. Get a little weak. A little hangry, maybe. You're not thinking straight. You don't think clearly. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This book is our food. This book is our food. And we're going to grow as we're in the word. So you've overcome the evil one. And the next group that John refers to is uh, mentioned in verses 13 and 14. He says that he's referring to the fathers. Look at the first part of verse 14. He says, I'm writing to you fathers. What characterizes this stage of the spiritual life? He says, I'm writing to you twice. He says this, because you know him who is from the beginning. In other words, the fathers of the faith, fathers in terms of Christian maturity, know God. Know him who is from the beginning. You know, there are several Greek words for know. There's the word that speaks of kind of a casual knowing. I mean, like, we all know people, right? I know a lot of people. I know thousands and thousands and thousands of people. I know them. Could recognize their face. Do you know so-and-so? Yeah, I met him one time. Yeah, I've spent a little bit of time with them, but I don't really know them. We only have one word in English for no. The Greeks had two that they could use. I mean, that I'm thinking of right now. One is the casual no. The other is I really know through experience, through interaction. I really know through intimacy. Even I know this individual spiritual fathers are those who know him who is from the beginning. They know God. They spent time with God. They're mature. Their love is incredible. The apostle John, of course, was at that level of maturity. 
The love of Jesus is shown through his life. In fact, he's about, uh, I don't know, 90 to 100 right now as he's writing this letter, 1 John. And as he became older and older, he, he stayed there at the church in Ephesus. I mean, he didn't live there, but that's where he was. And they would carry him to the meetings of the believers <laughs> And they'll say, brother, John, is there anything that you would like to say? And they carried him on a little bed or pallet. And, and he would say, he would get up on, on an elbow and he would say, my little children love one another. And that'd be all he would say. My little children love one another. And I believe with all my heart that those who are spiritually mature, the most mature of all are those whose lives are characterized by love, caring for people, other people first, putting the needs of other people first, sometimes maybe keeping their opinions to themselves because they don't want to stir up and upset other people because they understand that the peace within the church and the body of Christ is more important than any one single opinion. They're mature. They know God. They've spent time knowing God. How do you do that? It's through the Bible. It's through prayer. It's through experience with God. You ask God. God answers prayer. You develop this fellowship and relationship with God. You know him who is from the beginning. John's description of the stages of Christian growth challenges every single one of us as believers. As I look at this and I look at the descriptions of what these levels of development and growth are, I'm saying, Lord, I don't want to stay a baby. I don't want to be a child anymore. I want to have the characteristics of that young person who's strong and overcoming and defending. I want to have that in my life, but I also, most of all, want to know him. I want to know him who is from the beginning. And my prayer is that you will know all these things, that you will know victory, that you will know strength in your life, that you will know truth, but most of all, that you will know the Father. I want us to pray together now. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've made it clear that there is a path to maturity. You've made it clear how we can move forward in our spiritual walks. And as we have honestly examined ourselves, and ask the question, where am I? Where do I fit in here? I'm asking that you'll just spur us on to, to continually grow, to move forward, move ahead. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.
Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602-866-8999. That's 602-866-8999. Coming up next is Praying for the Next Generation. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I'm the host of this program, Praying for the Next Generation. I would like to start today with 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-7. through 7. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. The Greek word for partaker in verse 4 is koinonos, which means a sharer, partner, comrade, companion, a participant who mutually belongs and shares fellowship, a joint participant. Through the power of His promises, we become sharers of His nature in Christ. Jesus lives in us, and transforms us into His own likeness. So then, how are we called to live? Because of what God has done, we should make every effort in exercising our faith to cultivate Christ-like character qualities. The Greek word for moral excellence in verse 5 is arete, which means virtue, praise, moral goodness, a virtuous course of thought, feeling, and action, uprightness, and any excellence of a person in body or mind. This week, I spoke over the phone with many Christian students, ages 10 to 20 years old, and from various cultural backgrounds, and asked each of them the following questions. What does virtue personally mean to you? Out of all the virtues in the Bible, Which ones speak to you the most now? How are you developing them in your life? Who is your role model that has inspired you to pursue these virtues? It was a great joy to hear their genuine responses to my questions. 
most of them said, Virtue is moral goodness and uprightness. The virtues they mentioned the most were humility, purity, obedience, and perseverance. Most of them said they were developing virtues through relationship with God. Lastly, their role models were their family members whom they watched living out these virtues faithfully. Beloved, let's pray that God will raise up a generation who will be known in this world for their impeccable character and godly virtues. Heavenly Father, we praise you for giving us everything we need for living a godly life by your divine power so we can reflect your nature through true knowledge and magnificent promises. Thank you for choosing us to be your children and partakers of your divine nature. We stand in awe of your amazing grace and covenant of mercy. Father, forgive us for not training the next generation to be your disciples. Give us grace to follow your example and walk in your footsteps so we may become their role models and inspiration of true godliness and uncompromising faith. Fill this generation with a knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom with insight into your purposes, so that they will walk in a manner worthy of you through displaying impeccable character, moral courage, and personal integrity. Bless them to grow spiritually mature in your grace and knowledge, so they will live lives of radical love through your Spirit who dwells in them. Fill them with holy desire to live lives of holiness and humility, demonstrating kindness, gentleness, patience, and love to others. Teach them to walk in a culture of honor towards godly and wise counselors to submit to the authorities in their lives and to treat everyone with dignity. Guide them to keep their promises and commitments even when it costs them greatly. Give them teachable hearts to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, and righteousness and to acquire discipline and prudent lives. Lord, let their vision be fixed with determination, courage, and tenacity on the paths that you have set before them, that they may accomplish every God-given task with excellence, diligence, and perseverance. Fill their hearts with divine passion so their lives will be marked by relentless pursuit of your presence, your truth, and prayerfulness. Ignite their hearts with fiery love and undivided devotion so they will have a burning desire to see your glory declared among the nations, your marvelous deeds among all peoples. In your holy name we pray. Amen.
Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Lord of all. He chose and seed of Israel's race. He ransomed from the fall. Hail him who saves you by his grace. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.